Such a great song and so well done. Thank you, team, for leading us in that time of worship. Well, many of our elders, along with some other men in the church, enjoyed the annual Courageous Churchman Conference in Florida this past week. From my perspective, it's the premier uh, leadership conference for pastors, elders, men in the church. Uh, Always the first of February, great teaching, great panel discussions, seminars, fellowship, food, it's all there, and we had a great time together. The theme this year was the importance and priority of soul care, soul care, caring for souls. This should be the focus of everyone in the church, but certainly it is the primary concern of elders. We function for that purpose, to minister to people's souls. And to accomplish soul care, we as elders and you as congregants must focus on ministering biblical truth to everyone. Because the ideas that come from the world and the perspectives that come from the world don't help someone's soul. Soul care happens as the Spirit of God uses the truth of God as it's found in Scripture to bring instruction and admonishment and correction and training to a person's inner man, the soul, the heart. That's the innermost part of us. It's made up of our thoughts, our will, our affections, our motives, our conscience. And it is only biblical truth that pierces into the inner man that ministers to the soul. To take this a step further, since biblical truth is necessary for soul care, we need to understand then what the focus of the Bible is. We don't find in Scripture an emphasis on emotions, although the writers of Scripture do acknowledge the reality and significance of God-given human emotion. We don't find an emphasis or teaching on on some human constructs such as temperament or personality, although the writers and the people who are mentioned in Scripture certainly do display various personality traits and temperament traits. We don't even find an emphasis on behavior, although we do find behavior addressed. What the Bible emphasizes for the soul are the internal virtues that are necessary to live a life that pleases and glorifies God. Now, that is clearly the case with the section of 1 Thessalonians that we arrive at today. We are in chapter 5 still. Now, starting at verse 16. Starting here, we find some, not all, but some of the spiritual virtues and the spiritual qualities and heart inclinations and attitudes that should mark every believer, regardless of their own unique tendencies, regardless of their natural wiring, so to speak. And just think about how many different kinds of people there are. And when you join a church, or when you and I got married, or Anything like that, we certainly brought all our various characteristics and tendencies and habits with us. We didn't come into church membership or to marriage as a blank disc. Therefore, any church body, 
any marriage or any friendship or any ministry team will be made up of people who have differences, differences like these, people with different family backgrounds and therefore people who have developed differing traditions. It's made up of people who live at different economic levels. It's made up of people with differing personality traits, which essentially just refers to how we express ourselves. So in the body of Christ, in any given marriage, there can be people, someone who is fast or slow, outgoing, reserved, bold, timid, adventurous, cautious. Some people are calm. Some are excitable. Some are expressive. Some are unexpressive. Some are optimistic, some are pessimistic, or as I prefer to think of myself, realistic. Still, after 47 years, trying to explain that to my wife. There are those who are flexible, those who are rigid. Some are more artistic in their thinking, some more mathematical, some loud, some quiet, some logical, some sentimental. These unique personal tendencies can even be based on different ethnicities, or differing levels and types of giftedness. There are male and female differences. Unique tendencies can be due to differing convictions and preferences and likes and dislikes. The point is there is quite an array of traits and characteristics that exist amongst people, yet what the Bible teaches is truth that is for all of them. The Scriptures address and help and minister to the souls of every type of person. And that's because the Bible focuses on, as I mentioned, spiritual virtue, spiritual character, virtue that addresses the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then out of a changed heart, the soul, any person can display then a change in emotions or a change in behavior, regardless of their own unique tendencies. So while understanding your uniqueness and your unique traits and tendencies at some level can result in a little help, understanding and embracing the virtues that God expects results in real and lasting change. So let's delve into the virtues that the Apostle Paul mentions in his letter to the believers in Thessalonica. If you look at just the first three verses of this final, really, section of the letter, verses 16 through 18, you find them sort of grouped together in the form of three very terse commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. These are written in the present tense, imperatives, commands written in the present tense, which marks them as continual duties for all people. Equally, it doesn't matter what your traits are. Interesting, in the original language, the Greek, the modifier with each one of those does stand before the verb, emphatically before the verb. So really, all three of them should be worded that way, always rejoicing, continually praying, In everything, giving thanks. So to summarize, those three virtues should not only be constant and continual in the life of all believers, 
but also these are considered to be normal Christian virtues in every situation and every circumstance. So we're going to delve into these marks of normal, ongoing Christianity over the next three sermons. That's how important they are, each one. They each deserve their own sermon. So today, verse 16, likely the shortest passage I have ever preached in my ministry. Verse 16, and here we find two important emphases concerning joy. Joy. First is marked out for us the clear priority of joy. I mean, verse 16 is simple, two words in English, and yet it's a very striking command. Rejoice always or always rejoice. And this joy that it mentions and rejoicing are pervasive themes in Scripture. I found tons of verses. I'll just show you a few of them. Deuteronomy 12, 18, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. Well, which of God's people should do that? Every one of God's people. Psalm 2, verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy. Psalm 100, familiar words, serve the Lord with gladness, come before Him with joyful singing. So whether we're going about our undertakings, as Deuteronomy 12 says, on a daily basis, or gathering for worship, joy is to mark us. Perhaps the most familiar is what Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. But really? Really rejoice? I mean, no matter what's going on in our lives at any given time, no matter what's going on in the world at large, I mean, read the paper, Pastor. The answer is yes, always. In the Greek, always means always. This is what makes Christian joy unique, you see. This kind of joy can exist and even emerge under the most adverse of circumstances and not just when the circumstances are favorable or pleasant. Keep in mind something about the original readers. We learned about them along the way. Paul writing to the new believers, a new church in Thessalonica that he helped plant there along with Silas and Timothy, eventually had to leave and wrote them this letter to continue to encourage and instruct them. And we've read this before, that these believers began suffering persecution at the hand of those who opposed the truth. We saw it back in chapter 3, verse 4. Paul writes, when we, the ministry team, were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, just as you know, you're in it now. They understood suffering, but yet they had still, even as young believers, come to understand that joy is still possible. That was earlier in chapter 1, verse 6. You receive the word in much tribulation, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit as well. But nevertheless, Paul knew human nature. He knew that even the best need reminders And in this case, he knew they needed to be reminded of the importance of rejoicing at all times. He wasn't a blind optimist. Paul understood 
what serving the Lord would entail. He understood what living in a fallen world and serving the Lord will bring. It'll bring challenges. You find more than one list of these in Scripture. One is 2 Corinthians 11. I mean, here's his experience. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, from among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's all external, so he adds this thought, maybe the worst pressure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of burden, concern for all the churches. Paul understood suffering, but he also knew something else, that suffering does not have to destroy joy. He said that in Colossians 1 verse 14, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's a paradox. And he states that paradox very clearly in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, suffering yet always rejoicing, grieving perhaps yet always rejoicing. There's a mix. You find it in those other verses. Acts 5.41, the early apostles preaching the gospel were, had to suffer for that brought before the council, and he says, finally, when they were released, they went out rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Peter understood as well. He wrote about it as well. He was one of those early apostles. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Peter, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing. So this is a different kind of joy than what the world knows. This is spiritual joy. It's different than what you might call the giddy emotionalism that the world understands. Believers, unbelievers rather, unbelievers, those not following Christ, they can be happy. But it's it's happiness if their circumstances are good. Christian joy, in contrast, does not depend on how well things are going. It's able to flourish, even amidst sorrow, grief, suffering great afflictions. It's not superficial happiness and giddy emotionalism. It's not the same thing as Stoicism. They had the Stoics of their day, and we understand Stoicism today. It's this idea of of, of living with a a dispassionate indifference toward life. It's very stoic. There were stoics in Paul's day, and they would say they had some some level of joy, but it, it arose because they separated themselves from their passions. So their belief system was based on fate, and they couldn't control it, so they just resigned themselves to it. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. We'll just go through life stoic, unruffled. It's not that. Christian's joy is different than all that. It is a settled state of the heart that is not canceled out by difficult and challenging situations. It's a priority in Scripture that God's people manifest joy. There's a second emphasis 
that we're looking at today. It's the continual practice of joy. As I said earlier, this command to rejoice is in the present tense, so as to be a continual characteristic of our lives, and it is a command. It's an imperative, divinely inspired. So any failure to heed this constitutes disobedience. But how can we live this way? How can a Christian truly rejoice, especially given life's inevitable suffering and difficulties? Before I answer that more specifically, I do want you to know at the very beginning here, this involves our wills. We must engage our will. We have a part in maintaining the experience of joy, no different than what James wrote in those familiar words, James 1, 2, consider it all joy. You do that. That's a choice you make, to count it. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So we do engage our wills so that adverse circumstances are not allowed to rob us of our joy. So with that in mind, Let's note together what I've put together for you, 10 keys to having habitual joy. I thought of some more after I did this, but it was too late. And plus, when I had 11, I'm thinking, you can't have 11. That's, that's an odd number. 10's better. And we're going to depend on other Scripture passages to flesh all this out for us. So here's the first one, 10 keys to having habitual joy in life. Number one, we must embrace the gospel. Let's start there. There is no promise of what I'm talking about here today, real joy. There's no promise to you of this if you're outside a relationship of following Christ as your Lord and your Savior. True believers are the one who can learn to do this, can rejoice. And that's because it starts here. They know Christ as their Savior. I mean, their sins are forgiven. That's a great burden off. The Christian is the one that can say, it doesn't matter what the world can do to me. God had a plan of redemption. God gave His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, for my salvation. And I trusted in Him, so my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It starts here to have joy. That's not there. It makes sense to live life fretting and anxious and despondent. In this world, it makes sense. In fact, according to Peter, this is a mark of a true believer. 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen Him, Christ, we haven't, and yet you love Him, we do, if we're His followers, and though you do not see Him now, we don't, but you believe in Him, we do, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. I mean, this goes back to the very beginning of the announcement of Christ coming into the world. It was announced in an atmosphere of joy. Remember the angels in Luke chapter 2? I mean, we sing about that and think about that at Christmas, you know. Angel speaking to the shepherds said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, this message of the gospel. It's for all kinds of people. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. 
For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who's Christ the Lord. I mean, it began, the message began in an atmosphere of joy. And there are other verses that connect joy to knowing Christ, joy to proclaiming the good news. Remember in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer was all concerned because, uh, you know, the cells had opened up and, and he thought the prisoners had escaped. And so if you're a Roman jailer, you might as well just kill yourself. And he was going to do that until they stopped him. He came to Christ. He believed the gospel. In Acts 16, 34, says the Philippian jailer rejoiced then greatly. Why? Because he believed. Paul says in Philippians 1.18 about the preaching of this message of Christ, in every way Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Just knowing that the message of the good news of salvation is going out brings joy to my heart. So Christians, we can and should be this way, rejoicing for God's gift of His Son and the message of salvation. Number two, we must be people of prayer. We must be people of prayer. We won't have joy if we don't give our burdens to the Lord, and that's what prayer is about. We release our burdens to Him, and it brings joy just knowing that God always hears us, and He always answers our prayers according to His perfect sovereign will. Prayer really is aligning ourselves with God's sovereign will, ultimately. The psalmist knew that. He took joy from this. When he thought about it, Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord for lots of reasons, I'm sure, but I love the Lord because He hears my prayers. And the great passage on Philippians 4 doesn't use the word joy, but talks about peace, and peace is a companion, companion thought to joy. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens? doesn't mention the answer to the prayer. That's not the issue. It's just the praying, releasing of our burden. That brings about the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. There's joy associated with that. And I'll tell you, even specifically, we should pray for this. We should pray regularly that the Holy Spirit would work this joy in our hearts because we see in Galatians 5, it is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. There's one fruit there, but it's like a cluster of grapes, one cluster with a lot of grapes, one fruit with many aspects of the one fruit, but the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is all these things, love, joy peace, patience, and so forth. We need the Spirit's work in us. We can't conjure it up just on our own. We need the Spirit prompting our wills and enabling our wills to choose to rejoice. Paul wrote in Romans 15, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. See how those two are connected always. So that you will abound in hope. That's connected as well. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So pray. Give your burdens to the Lord and pray that God would enable you to rejoice. Number three, we must learn God's attributes. We must know God accurately as He's revealed in Scripture. Christian joy flows from this. What the believer knows to be true about God. Not how we want to define Him or how the world thinks of Him, but how Scripture defines Him. So the more time we spend learning about Him and time spent then praising Him, for what we've learned about Him, 
the more joyous we will be. The psalmist said that in Psalm 16, I've set the Lord continually before me. Not my own definition of the Lord, but who He really is. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad. When I think about God, His perfections, His attributes, that's what it means to rejoice in the Lord, as Isaiah 61 says. It's not just some sort of mystical thing. I'm rejoicing in the Lord, in Him, who He is. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord. That kind of joy is our strength. Number four, we must be committed to the Word. Of course, after, all put, after I put all this together, I, my wife helped me realize that number four should have been number two, and number two should have been number three, and number three should be number four. So keep that in mind. But it was way too late to change all this. But she's right. So here's how we'll fix it. You can't pray properly, and you won't know God's attributes if you aren't committed to the Word of God, because that enables our prayers and helps us know God. So there, I fixed it. We must be committed to the Word. Now, most as, you, as most of you know, Kevin and Danny and I have been going through Psalm 119 on Wednesday nights. We finished that study. We're about to start the study of Habakkuk this Wednesday night. Interesting, I've been studying on that. You know what a Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words that's found in our passage? Hamas. Come Wednesday nights. This is timely. Psalm 119. This is the psalm that exalts the glory and majesty of God's Word, which in this psalm is sometimes called His testimonies, His statutes, His ordinances, His law, His promises, all synonyms for the Word, truth. This psalmist I mean, this surfaces as you study Psalm 119. He loved the Word of God. He took great joy, found great joy in the Word. And you see that in various verses. It's way too long to mention many, but just verse 14 for right now, Psalm 119, verse 14. He says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. And that term rejoice means a deep-seated delight in something. But notice what he delighted in. He rejoiced in not just the knowledge of the testimonies, but the way of your testimonies. The Hebrew concept of way emphasizes more than just knowledge. It's it's also the application of God's truth. So it is in applying the truth of God's Word to our own ways that biblical virtue and character and conduct then infiltrate and saturate our thinking and our choices in life, and we change. And the result will be the same as it was for that unknown psalmist, joy. So to obey the word, this comes out in Psalm 119 as well. It was never a drudgery for the psalmist. He rejoiced in it. In fact, look what he compares his delight to. The same kind of joy that someone in possession of great riches would express. The bottom line is God's truth and God's way, they are priceless. And the psalmist knew that. What's sad is people can so easily find themselves rejoicing in something else, sort of getting excited over many things that are only of this earthly existence. And if they're only of this earthly existence, then ultimately they're somewhat trivial. But in the truth, we've been given a prize worth more than that. 
Jump to verse 16 of Psalm 119, and he says, I will delight in your statutes. And the term delight is not the same word as rejoice in verse 14. The term refers to a settled pleasure. But both terms together confirm the idea that this author was committed to finding his happiness this way. He found his happiness in Scripture. And that truth that he found, it satisfied him. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And that sounds, all of this sounds exactly what David said as well in Psalm 19. They, God's words, are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and even the drippings of the honeycomb. We need to learn from this. We need to rejoice in Scripture. We're committed to the Word of God. We can grow in joy. Number five, we must trust in God's sovereignty. We must trust in God's sovereignty to have joy. Joyful Christians trust in God's providential working of all things according to His divine and perfect master plan. Joseph understood that, speaking to his brothers who had abused him. And years later, he, he says this to them in Genesis 50, 20, I know you meant evil against me, but God was involved. God meant it for good to bring about a greater purpose, what he called that present result. Psalm 132. 139 just has some marvelous thoughts. Just talking about the providence of God, which includes His omniscience. He knows all things. His omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's perfectly wise in all that He knows. Look how the psalmist captures it here. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my fault from a thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. That's true about God concerning every one of us. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know what I'm going to say. You've enclosed me behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. That's a way of expressing the providence of God in our lives and what He knows. But Paul expressed it so wonderfully in Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, not to everybody, only those who love Him. And those who love Him are the ones who have been called by Him to salvation. His promise is only for them. But the point is, for them, for true believers, no event, no circumstance in our life can diminish our true joy apart from our own sin. So yes, I could have added that when a clear conscience is connected to joy. But except for sin... Nothing will diminish our joy if we focus on the good that God is doing and bringing about. And when we're trusting in His sovereignty, then any so-called setback is just another opportunity. Habakkuk put it very poetically. Habakkuk 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult. We sang that word earlier. It means to rejoice in. I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. None of those other things can diminish that. It doesn't have to. It's our choice. 
So regardless of our circumstances, if we truly trust God, that He's a wise and good and just God and powerful God, we can say every day what Psalm 118, 118 says. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. I'll be glad in this day today. That's a lot different than waking up each day as Eeyore. Don't bother. Number six, we must develop contentment. Contentment's connected with joy. Contentment in every circumstance, this virtue will grow as we learn to reason about things biblically. And that reasoning includes thoughts like this. If I'm reasoning biblically, I'm thinking this. The reality is my circumstances are constantly changing. They'll always be changing. Therefore, I cannot be dependent upon them. What stays the same in every circumstance and what's most important in every circumstance is my own relationship to the Lord. And that relationship includes the knowledge that God is not my judge anymore. He's my loving Father who's concerned about all His people And nothing happens to his people that are apart from his care. So I can therefore be assured that whatever he wills, whatever he permits and allows is for his glory and my good. That's reasoning biblically. And if we make a habit of reasoning that way, then we can experience contentment and associated with contentment is joy. The classic passage in the New Testament on contentment is what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, and it's this pendulum swing, you know, about circumstances in life. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I've in, and then the pendulum swing starts. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity on the other end. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled. That's the good times, and going hungry. It's hard. I've learned the secret of having abundance at times, also suffering need. It ultimately did not matter to Paul which end of the swing he was on at any given time of what God was allowing in his life. He understood that God was sovereign and using every situation for his good. So he didn't just learn to cope with God's will. He embraced God's will as what was best for his life. And that ability is not due to some sort of wiring that you're born with or traits or unique tendencies. Wasn't true of Paul. He was not saying this because he was the super apostle and so gifted. No, he depended on some strength outside of him. And he says that in verse 13. Famously puts it, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And most of us are aware that verse is abused by many people. They claim it for all sorts of things. The all things, the definition of that is controlled by the context. The context is about contentment in all circumstances. The all things is being content in every circumstance. I can do that through Him who strengthens me. And what an encouragement that is because that confirms that this kind of contentment is available to all of us. It's coming from the Lord's strength. We too can live our lives trusting in God's sovereignty, and that will result in us being contented people. We'll be people by His strength who will manifest a lot of patience and flexibility along the way instead of anxiety and fretting and fear.
we will manifest a deep-seated joy. Number seven, we must control our expectations about life. We must guard our hearts against these expectations forming. Now, there is a difference between desires and expectations. You've heard teaching on this, I know. We can have all sorts of desires in life, and unless the Bible forbids it, we can have all kinds of desires about ourselves, about our marriage, our children, our jobs, our careers, many areas of life. Nothing wrong with having desires, but we can allow those desires, even good desires, to cross over in our hearts to the point where they are ruling desires, controlling desires. And in Scripture, there's another word for that. It's the word lust. We hear the word lust and we think of one, only one category of sin, but as you see in James 1, lust is connected to every sin. Lust is anything I must have to be happy. That's a lust. It's past a desire. It's a controlling desire. And there's another word we can use. They become idols. We allow idols to form in our hearts, and that means something has become more important than loving and serving the Lord. So regardless of the term you use, ruling desires, lusts, idols, they're all captured in our cultural word, expectations, the way we use it sometimes. We have expectations about life turning out a certain way. We have expectations about our jobs, our marriages, children, expectations about church. You had a certain expectation about this sermon, and it's not materializing the way you expected. So this is dynamic can go on. And when things don't materialize the way we expect, we're very susceptible then to discouragement, discontent, depression, frustration, irritation, anger, bitterness. Those are the symptoms of ruling expectations. I heard this definition one time of expectation. An expectation is a premeditated disappointment. A premeditated disappointment. So we have to control them. We have to be on guard against them. We must keep our desires at the level of desires so they don't become these deep-seated expectations. And we do that by giving our desires to the Lord. Even if we take some steps to see them come to pass, ultimately we give our desires to the Lord and we trust Him to bring them about in His way, His timing, if at all. And the result of that will be joy. Number eight, we must give up rights. These are all connected. We must give up rights. And we won't have any trouble doing that if we just remember who owns us. It's the one who has all the rights. We have blessings and responsibilities. God has rights. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 says, you've been bought with a price. That means if you're a follower of Christ, you don't own yourself anymore. He does. Therefore, glorify God in your body with everything about you, because that's why we're to live. And so the more we remember that, the more joy and peace we're going to have. But I promise you, the more we focus on and insist on what we think we deserve, our rights, the more miserable we will be, because someone else is messing up our joy always. Some circumstances is thwarting 
our joy, robbing us of it. Number nine, we must love God's work in others. Now, Paul is a good example of this others focus, we can call it, and the joy that it brought him. 1 Thessalonians 3, we saw it there. He wrote to Timothy, because after Paul left, he sent Timothy back to see how they were doing. He came back with a report. He says, Timothy's come back. He's reported to us the good news of your faith and love. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? He was happy. He was joyful over what God was doing in the lives of other people, even while he was suffering. He said that to Timothy. He longed to see Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 1, so that I may be filled with joy. Listen, this is also another key for us. The more we only think about self, the more we care about self, the more miserable we will be. But the more we look outward and the more we care about others, what God's doing in their lives, the blessings in their lives and so forth, even caring about the burdens they bear, the more joy we can have. And lastly, number 10, we must long for heaven. That means living with a heavenly mindset, being heavenly minded so we actually can be some earthly good. Christ said it in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be glad. Why? Well, because of heaven. Your reward's there. It's all worthwhile there. Luke 10, 20, rejoice over what? Well, your names are recorded there. You've got a reservation, an inheritance. Rejoice over that. Nothing can change it if you're a follower of Christ. And being heavenly minded like this will bring joy and comfort in the here and now. And that helps us endure the trials that we experience because we're reminded that our trials only happen here. In heaven, there will be no suffering. There will be no disappointments. There will be no disillusionment. There will be no injustice. There will be no needs. No afflictions, no trials. Paul understood that, Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are just not worthy to be compared, compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Think about that statement based on that list I read earlier about all the shipwrecks and beatings and everything else. He puts all that on a scale, on one side of an old-fashioned scale, and he puts heaven on the other side, the glory of heaven, and it outweighs it all. So he says in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore, we don't lose heart. We don't become in despair. Even though our outer man is decaying, that's our bodies. I mean, that's one one thing we can say that separates us each here today. We're all in different stages of decay. I'm more decayed than many of you. But that's okay. Our inner man, the soul, is being renewed day by day. And therefore, a momentary light affliction, it happens, but it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Somehow, there's even a connection with how much severely we suffer in this world with how much glory we'll be rewarded with in the next. 
While we look not at the things which are seen, you're not going to have joy over all this if you're looking at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, this is faith. It's all about faith. The things which are seen, if you have to have that, that's all temporal stuff. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Bottom line, we have ample reason to rejoice, even amid the most unfavorable circumstances. We know our our sinful past is done with. Our present past and future sins are covered. In Christ, we can know our Father and, and seek to please Him. We have the hope of eternity of living forever with Christ. We have no excuse for being despondent and miserable. If we are, it's a choice. Part of the problem for many church members is the fact that their faith is sort of residing in the background of their lives, you know, like some sort of operating system that you don't see. You know, it's the operating system that's in the background. I'm pretty techie with that illustration, aren't I? As far as my tech goes, though. It's there operating in the background of their lives, and they think little about it, little about the Bible, little about God, little about their own spiritual condition, except when they need it. And for them, their Christianity is just the knowledge that suddenly they can, they can dial 911 in prayer and make an emergency call when they need God. That's not genuine Christianity, so Martin Lloyd-Jones put it in some questions. Is Christian truth something you like to have? And to know that it's there if you're taken desperately ill, or if some loved one is taken ill, or if you are suddenly confronted by the loss of your income, or when some disaster takes place, or when you're on your deathbed. I mean, is that what it is for you? That way of thinking is totally different from some far-reaching bottom-line verses like Matthew 6, verse 33 and 34. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. And to close, I, I think this verse in Romans just sums up the whole sermon. The kingdom of God is all about what we're talking about today, according to this verse. It's not about eating and drinking and other temporal issues that people get upset about. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little bitty passage that is so full of the kind of thinking that we are to live with each day. Lord, we confess we're weak in this. There are many moments where we are like Eeyore. There's many moments where we fret and are anxious and despondent. We confess it's by our own wrong thinking. We've forgotten all these keys and maybe some others. So, Lord, thank you that even that, even our grumbling was paid for by Christ. But Lord, enable us by your grace to live in light of what your expectations of us are, to rejoice always. I do pray for the one who's outside of Christ. Help them to come to the place where they humbly admit this does not apply to them because they don't have any hope. They don't believe the truth. They're not trusting in Christ alone. Bring them to that place where they desire to be forgiven of their sin 
and to start a life of serving Christ as their Lord and Savior. Help us now as we observe the Lord's table, as we're reminded once again that it's all because of Christ and what He did in His life and death that we can we can learn the truth about who you are and have a relationship with you and learn what it means to rejoice always. So thank you for the cross. May we adequately celebrate and remember that today at this table. In our Savior's name, amen.